All right. Hello. I'm Joe Collins. We are uh, continuing our series of following Jesus through the pages of Mark. So there was this uh, elderly woman. And uh, she had spent the whole day at the local senior center. And uh, she was getting ready to leave. Day was over and she was getting ready to leave. And she began looking for her car keys and couldn't find them. She looked high and low and just, just nothing. She couldn't find her car keys. And, and then she thought to herself, oh my goodness. I might have left them in the car. And she was worried because in that part of the neighborhood, if you left your keys in the car, odds are it was going to be stolen. So sure enough, she goes outside and there in her parking spot is empty. And she realizes, oh, my car got stolen. So she calls the police and she files a report. She gives a description of the car and explains what happens. And then she hangs up and then she has to make the call she doesn't want to make. She has to call her husband. She's embarrassed. She calls. She says, honey, I'm so sorry. I uh, left the keys in the car and the car's been stolen. And after a long pause, her husband barks at her, I dropped you off. <laughs> so then she was embarrassed and she paused for another minute and she said, oh gosh, I'm so glad the car's not stolen. Please forgive me, I'm so forgetful, but uh, would you mind coming and picking me up? And he said, listen, I'll be there as soon as I can tell the officer that I didn't steal your car. <laughs> Sometimes we make life harder than it needs to be. And sometimes we make Christianity harder than it needs to be. Today, we're going to talk about how do we make Christianity easy? Now, I'm not saying it's easy, but how do we make it easier? How do we do Christianity in such a way that it's not so difficult, that we don't overcomplicate it? Turn with me over to Mark chapter 6. We're going to read verse 45. We're going to start there. Before we do, let's pray. Father... Thank you for this morning, for bringing us together, and please just help us to look into your word intently and to be, to be instructed by you, by your spirit, and by the message. Speak to us today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get in the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Now, it's been two weeks since we we're in our story, in our narrative here at the Gospel of Mark. And if you remember two weeks ago, Jesus did what? What was the last thing that he did just before this account? Who remembers two weeks ago? Gerardo. He fed 5,000 men, probably more like 20 to 25,000 people. And how many things did he have to feed them with? Two fish and five loaves of bread. One of the most amazing miracles in all of Scripture, the, one of only two miracles recorded by all four gospel writers. It was, the miracle, it was the miracle that was done and witnessed by more people than any other miracle Jesus had performed. It came at the end of his two-year time that he spent in Galilee, where he had crisscrossed with his disciples all through the region of Galilee. If you look at our map, you see it up there on the top, uh, of the top half of the, of the land of Palestine there. And he, for two years, he had gone throughout the whole land, and he, he'd become widely known. And at this point in time, literally tens of thousands of people began to follow him. When he showed up to speak, it wasn't 10 or 20, it was 10 or 20,000 people. 
And there he was, just on the northeast side of the, the Sea of Galilee, just, just near the, the town of Bethsaida, where, where 25 or so thousand people gathered. He taught an incredible message. He healed. And then he fed, five, he fed 25, 20 to 25,000 people there. And it says, immediately, Jesus made his disciples get in the boat. You know, this idea, you know, what, what, what was so urgent? What was so important? Why did Jesus shoo the disciples away so quickly? It must have been late in the day, maybe even evening by this time, by the time everybody got fed. What, what would cause him to shoo them off after such an amazing event? Well, if we look at the Gospel of Mark, you don't need to turn there. We, I mean, John, we find out that in John's account, shortly after this, this miracle, the crowd tried to make Jesus their king by force. There was a, a literal uprising that started to occur after he fed 25,000 people. There was a real uh, excitement about him, and they, were, they had had enough. We had heard about him. They had seen his miracles for two years now, and now the people were like, we're ready. You're going to be king. And they were ready to go to war. They were ready to start the rebellion right then and right there. And Jesus did not want his disciples to get caught up in the crowd mentality. It's easy to get caught up in the crowd mentality. We have a, an election coming up and there's a lot of crowd mentality going on. It's so easy. Jesus didn't want that for the disciples. Maybe they weren't ready. Maybe he knew they couldn't handle it. Who knows? Maybe they would have got caught up themselves. So he shoes them away quickly by boat ahead of, to, to, towards Bethsaida. Now John tells us that they were actually heading towards Capernaum which tells me that Jesus was playing a little bit of hide-and-seek here. He sent them off in the direction of Bethsaida, but really they were going to curve all the way around and end up over by Capernaum. I think he was doing that to throw the crowd off. He didn't want this, this thing to continue on into the next day. And so he shoes them away, and he stays back and he dismisses the crowd. And after he's able to calm the crowd down and get them dismissed, it says he goes up on a mountainside to pray. In the Gospel of Mark, there's three times that the Bible that Mark records for us that Jesus withdrew to pray. On three different occasions. Number one happened almost two years before this in the town of Capernaum when Jesus first went public with his ministry and he preached his public message in the synagogue of Capernaum. You may remember back several weeks when we looked at that. And he preached such an amazing, powerful message of repentance that it was like slapping people in the face. And then he healed the demoniac. And then he headed on over to Peter's house where hundreds or maybe thousands of people brought the sick and the, and the ailing and the demon-possessed. And he spent the whole rest of the day and late, well into the evening healing people there in Capernaum. And in the morning, they came right back looking for him. They were ready. He was going to be the governor of Capernaum. He was the new guy, baby. We're electing him now. But where was he? He had disappeared. He withdrew to pray. The second time we see Jesus withdrawing is in this account. After 25,000 or so people have been fed and they want to make him king of Palestine. They're ready. And what does he do? He gets rid of the crowd and he goes up on a mountainside and he prays. The third time in the Gospel of Mark we see Jesus withdrawing is just a few months from now. A few months from this time when he travels down into Judea. And it's the evening before he's arrested. And he's in the garden, or the evening of his arrest, and he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he withdraws to pray. Three times that Jesus withdrew, that Peter remembered specifically, he withdrew. 
Now, Jesus prayed a lot, and he probably withdrew more, but Peter, in his retelling to Mark of this gospel, of his story, of uh, his experience with Jesus, he remembered three moments that stood out to him where Jesus withdrew. And I put before you that all three of those moments were points of, of crisis. There was, a, there was a, a crisis occurring, and the crisis was, is Jesus going to do God's will, the Father's will, or is he going to get tempted to do man's will? Is he going to let him make him governor of Capernaum? Is he going to let him make him king of Palestine? Is he going to let, tell God, I don't want to die and I'm not going to go to the cross? Is he going to, is he going to turn away from God's will? Or is he, going to, is he going to let God's will be done? When you pray, do you pray for God's will to be done? Or like me, do you pray for your will to be done? I find myself, I pray a lot, I hope you do too, and I find myself praying, and I often pray for my will. God, please, you know, give me this, give me that, help me with this, help that situation, let this go out. And, and I have to consciously remind myself to pray for God's will. Who here knows the Lord's Prayer? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your will be done. That's what Jesus prayed for. When you're in crisis, do you pray for the crisis and how you think it should go? Or do you put your, do you put your trust into God the Father, turn it over to Him and say, God, whatever your will is, be done. Jesus prayed for God's will to be done after such an incredible experience there of the, this amazing miracle and the great enthusiasm to, to, to be behind him and, and, and to begin this rebellion and make him their king, Jesus pushed that away and he went and he said, no, I want God's will to be done. That's not what, what we're going to do here. And, and, and so he prayed. He withdrew to do that. You know, sometimes our Christianity gets hard and it gets complicated. And one way, just one small way, one first step you can take to make it a little easier is to pray for God's will to be done. Amen. Because what you're saying when you do that is you're putting your trust in God that He knows what should happen right now. He knows how this should play out. And so you're turning it over to Him and you're saying, God, I'm not, I'm not opposed to expressing my heart and my feelings, but at the end of the day, I want what you want. And that's what I'm going to go with. Verse 47, later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. So, you know, feeding 25 or 20, 25,000 people takes a while. And when he was done, it was, it was very late at night. He shooed the disciples away. They got in the boat. They were heading towards Bethsaida, but probably on their way to Capernaum. Jesus goes up on the mountainside to pray. And... While he's up there, he's praying. He looks down into the Sea of Galilee. He's not far. They were maybe a few miles away from him at that point, maybe, maybe just a couple of miles. The Sea of Galilee is not very wide where he was at this point. And it was spring, so there was probably a full moon, and there was a wind, so the, the dust and the, and the smoke from the fires and stuff was probably cleared out, and Jesus probably had really good eyesight, and he was able to see them stuck 
in the lake, growing against the wind, and they were struggling to get across the lake. And so Jesus decides to walk on across on his own. You know, he, Uber was late. <laughs> he was in a hurry. And so he just nonchalantly decides to cross the lake and just starts walking. I love this passage because there's so much detail in this passage. I mean, it's later that night. It was in the middle of the lake. He was alone. Disciples restrained at the door. There was a wind shortly before dawn walking on the lake. I mean, you see all this detail. This really happened. This is not a made-up story. It's not just some sort of fable about Jesus. There's, there's too much detail here to, to look at this. C.S. Lewis was once, you know, one of the things that, if you know who C.S. Lewis was, he's one of, the, one of the greatest Christian thinkers of the last century, real hero to many Christians, wrote incredible books, just a mind, a, a beautiful mind. But one of the things that helped him become a believer, he was actually a professor, professor of ancient literature. And, and, and he was not a believer, but when he read the Bible, he initially approached it as ancient literature, and then he realized by reading it that it's not written as mythology or ancient literature is written. It's actually written like fact, and that was actually the start of his coming to faith. By looking at the Scriptures and realizing this is an eyewitness accounts. These are first-hand accounts, retellings of, of actual events, completely different than what ancient myths and, and ancient writings look like. And so what we see here is a lot of detail because this really did happen. But the other thing we see here that cracks me up, and this is, this is where the story becomes funny to me, is it's so matter-of-fact. Well, he just decided to cross the lake. So it says he just walked on the water. He walked on the lake. And my favorite line in the whole thing, he was about to pass by them. I find that utterly hilarious. I don't know if Jesus was intending to pass by them, but the disciples thought he was intending to pass by them. That's how they understood it. They're like, there he, there he goes. He's, where is he going? Now, of course, at first they thought he was a ghost, so they were scared to death, and they're panicking and screaming in the boat. And there he's just walking by. And the only reason he stops to go to the boat is because they're screaming in the boat. You know, the things that seem so difficult, the things that seem impossible, the things that we cannot even comprehend are easy for Jesus. They're easy. He just walks right by them. Oh, I, you know, I'm never going to get through this, this trial, this temptation, you know, what, what's going on at work and all the people there that are driving me crazy and I just can't take it anymore. I can't take it anymore. And Jesus says, oh, okay, I'm just going to walk by. It's not a big deal. What's going to happen in the election? I don't know. Is it going to be Trump? Is it going to be Hillary? I don't, Jesus says, uh-huh, what's the problem? As he walks by. How am I going to make ends meet? How am I going to help my kids become faithful? What? Uh-huh. Uh-huh, okay, I'll see you on the other side. He walks by the problems we think are so big and so difficult and so hard to overcome. He just walks right by. Nothing is too hard. Nothing is too difficult. Nothing is bigger or out of his control. It's just matter of fact for him. It's so nonchalant. Of course, they're in the boat screaming and yelling and panicking. So he walks over there and he says, Take courage. It is I. Do not 
be afraid. Words to live by. So often, what makes us afraid drives us to make bad choices. So often, the fear of being left out, the fear of being humiliated, the fear of missing out, the fear of being hurt, the fear of, 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 of feeling pain, all those things. We get so afraid, we get so scared that we make bad decisions, we make bad choices, and we find ourselves struggling in the middle of the lake against the wind. We're not making any progress in life because we're so dominated by what we're afraid of by what makes us scared, and Jesus just walks right by it. You know, I, I uh, was thinking about this, and you know, as a father, I worry about my kids, and I worry about how they're going to do, and what they're going to be like, and what they're going to become, and I get so worried I get so worked up over it, and, and I, rightly so. I mean, if you're a parent, you love your kids. You worry about them. But Jesus, he just walks right by it. Or, or, or you, you, you know, you're, a, you're a husband, and you're trying to make ends meet and take care of your family, and, and, and we spend so much time and so much energy and so much worry, and we lose our hair, and we go gray, and all these things happen, and, and Jesus, he just walks right by it. Or you're, you know, you're single and you, you, you so badly want someone to love you that you'll, I know I did this, that you'll do whatever it takes to win their affection. And you'll, you'll put the intimacy, the physical relationship in, in front of the actual relationship because it's so important. To, you want to be validated. Oh, they love me. And, and, and they're showing their love for me. And, and Jesus walks right by that. Because he's not, he's not driven by fear. He's not reacting to things that he's afraid of. What is there to be afraid of? You need food? I'll, I'll make you some food. You need to cross the lake? Well, let's walk across the lake. You need healing? I'll, I'll give you healing. There's nothing that is beyond his ability. But so often when, I'm, when I should be faithful, I, I'm fearful. You know, making Christianity easier is what we're talking about today. And, and, and one small step is just to pray for God's will to be done. Put your attention on God's will instead of your will. But another small step that you can take if you want to make your Christianity a whole lot easier is start living by faith rather than living by fear. Fear makes things much more complicated. And our reaction to fear and the decisions we make based out of fear complicate things even more. But if we can get to this point where we live by faith, it makes things a lot easier. You'll find yourself just walking by. Things that were a struggle before are nothing now. Things that were scary before are not frightening at all now. You just walk right by it. Now, I know what you're thinking. I'm going to answer it in a second. Verse 51, then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their, heart were, their hearts were hardened. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, okay, Joe, live by faith, not by fear. That's a great religious statement. What does it really mean? 
I mean, what does it really mean? What does it mean to live by faith and not by fear? When he got into the boat, it says that the wind died down and they were completely amazed. Completely. Totally. Nothing left, right? I mean, fully. In awe. And you can imagine being in that boat and seeing that happen. But the funny thing to me is, had they not been completely amazed before? He just fed 25,000 people. He healed demoniacs. He healed people in the synagogues. He healed a whole town up in Capernaum. He preached these messages that people couldn't even, they didn't even know how to react to him. He confronted religiously. I mean, he did all this stuff. And now they're amazed? Finally? Aren't we like that? It's like, it's like you know, we're, we're, we, it just goes right through our hands like sand. You know, faith, it's just so hard to hold because it just, it just spills out. You know, our, our, human fa- our, our human frailty, our failing. So, so how, what does it mean to live by faith? How can, we, how can we capture the sand? How can we hold it? Well, I think there's a really important key in this passage. He says in verse 52, for they had not understood about the loaves. Who knows what he's talking about? Who wants to take a guess? A little audience participation. What is he referring to when he says the loaves? Yes. So you're saying he was referring to the food that he fed the the 25,000. Anyone else? Brian. He gave him the power to do it themselves. I hear a second on that. Any other thoughts? Yes. Absolutely. Yeah, no, it's great. Thank you. I think you guys are all right. The loaves that he's referring to here are the loaves that he fed the 25,000 with. Now, you guys might remember at the end of the last message, I, said, I, I mentioned that when the feeding was done, there were 12 baskets left over, and in those baskets were leftover loaves and fish, and there was 12 baskets, one for each of the disciples. And I can't help but think that when he hurried them away, they grabbed their baskets, and they ran over, and they got in the boat. And so in the boat, were there 12 baskets? And now Peter is telling us something interesting. I want you to follow me because it's hard for me to word this. It's not a hard concept. It's just hard to explain. But I want you to pause for a second. I want you to think about something for a second. We're going to break the fourth wall, right, where I talk to the audience over here. All right, here we go. This passage was dictated to Mark by Peter many, many years later, long after it had happened. Jesus had died. He had resurrected. Peter went on to preach the first gospel sermon. He himself had performed miracles, raising people from the dead, healing people, etc. All the apostles were scattered, and they were preaching about Jesus, and they were doing miraculous things. And it was later in Peter's life when when he had Mark there as his protege and he began to dictate to Mark his experiences with Jesus over those so many years before that he mentions, for they had not understood about the loaves. This is Peter reflecting and realizing something. A connection went off in his mind. He, why, what was the problem? Why were we so tormented? Why were we so given into fear? Why couldn't we do the things that Jesus wanted us to do? Because we didn't get the loaves. 
And you can imagine Mark going, loaves, what are, you, what are you talking about? Remember, Mark, we had 12 baskets and we took them into the boat with us and they were in the boat. They were right there. And here we were struggling against the wind and the waves and couldn't get across this stupid lake, a lake they fished on all the time. Either they were really bad fishermen or there was a different lesson that God was trying to teach them. You see, the loaves represented the miracle of the feeding of the 25,000, the 5,000 men, 20,000 people. And if you remember, that miracle was intended for them to do. Jesus had asked them to feed. They couldn't overcome the obstacles. It was impossible for them, so Jesus did it. And as a little reminder of what could have been, he gave them each a basket filled with bread and fish. It was a reminder of the unlimited potential of faith. Had the disciples, let me put it to you this way, had the disciples done the miracle, had they taken Jesus at his word and said, okay, we're going to do this, go for it, and they started breaking and blessing the food, and it started coming out, they would have been so amazed, they would have been so blown away, oh my goodness, look what God we can do through our faith in Jesus Christ, that they wouldn't have taken the boat, they would have walked across themselves. Because they would have understood the unlimited potential that faith in Jesus was giving them. Let me put it to you this way. What does living by faith look like? Here it is. Here's the point. Write it down. It looks like taking God at His word. That's what living by faith looks like. It's not some mystery. It's not some ooey-gooey feeling that some people get and some people don't. It's not a secret. It is very simple. It is very straightforward. I'm not saying it's easy to do. But it's very straightforward. It's taking God at His word. Man. You know, I think that you have been given a basket of faith. I've been given a basket of faith. It's not literal, but figuratively, we all have a basket of faith. It's filled with faith, not fish and loaves. And in that basket is the Word of God. And every time we go into that basket and we take God at His Word, we multiply our faith. And every time you dip in there and you take him at his word, you multiply your faith. And every time you dip in there and you take him at his word, you multiply your faith. And your faith can multiply 1, 10, 50, 100, 25,000 times if you're willing to dip into the basket and take him at his word. We're doing something amazing with the Simi and the Shoreline churches. In a time when, when churches seem to be dividing, we're trying to unify. We're trying to merge. 
And there has been times where this has been a very difficult thing. It's, it's a professional thing for me. This is what I do for a living, my wife and I. And it has gotten hard. And I have had to go into the basket. And I've had to just, what does the Bible say? Thou shall not gossip. You know, don't be critical, whatever. I pull those things out and I go, okay, I'm going to do them. And things get a little better. Things take a step forward. And I get a little more faithful. And then I go back to the basket again. In my family... I think about my children and wanting them to become disciples and, and be men and women of faith. And, and I have to go to the basket. And in the basket, the God's Word says to me, train a child when he's young in the way he should go. When he's old, he will not depart from it. I've got to take God at His Word. I've got to put that into practice. I've got to trust that. And trust that at some point, it will click. What does living by faith look like? It looks like taking God at His Word. You know, we've, in this series, we've come up with some cool phrases, some, some mottos that I, I really want to make a part of our church. I want them to be the Simi Church, the Shoreline Church. I want them to be in our culture. The first one, preach repentance and practice grace. Let's make that who we are. The second one, Belong before you believe. Let's open the funnel. Let's let people, let's accept people and let them in knowing that they're not perfect, knowing that God's not finished with them. Some of them may come in, they may even be uncomfortable for us. But they can belong before they believe. We're not just going to belong, we're going to move them towards belief. And the third one is take God at His word. That's what living by faith is really all about. Taking God at His word. Verse 53. When they crossed over, they landed at Jacinerate and anchored there. Now, Jacinerate was just right next to Capernaum, basically. As soon as they got off the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout that whole region, carried the sick on mats wherever they heard He was. And wherever He went into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in marketplaces. They begged Him to let Him touch even the edge of His cloak. And all who touched it were healed. You know, Jesus, again, this is the high point of his ministry in Galilee. It's actually coming to an end. You know, that was his last major miracle, the feeding of the 25,000. He heads across the lake. He has to get away from that crowd. They get over to Jacinerate, which is near Capernaum. It's a beautiful city, by the way. It was uh, part of a very fertile area. The town was very populated. It was, uh, it was called the Pearl or the Paradise of Galilee because it was such a lush and beautiful place. They get there, and as soon as they get off the boat, again, there's people there. They recognize him. They come to him. And what does he do? Immediately, he preaches repentance. He practices grace. He lets them belong before they believe. And he immediately starts healing and taking care of people. What he has always been doing. What he's been doing for the past two years. And then it says something really cool. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. At this point in the ministry of Jesus in Galilee, faith in him was at such a high level that all they had to do was touch his clothes and they could be healed. The more we take Jesus at His word, the more faithful we become. Right. And the easier 
Christianity is. Jesus didn't have to do anything at this point. He could just walk through and people would just touch him and healings would start to occur. What would that be like if we'd come to church and people would just walk in and at the first song they hear Jessica's beautiful voice and they just fall on their knees and say, I want to be a Christian. Or John shakes their hand and says, hi, welcome to church. Yes, study the Bible with me, please. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be great if our kids just followed us around going, I want to be just like you and I want to be a Christian too. Wouldn't that be awesome? The more we take him at his word, the more faithful we live and the more miracles happen. We could be telling story after story in this room of miracle after miracle. The question is, are we going to understand the lows? Are we going to understand that faith is really about taking him at his word and and living by faith is the, the easiest way to live the Christian life? Miracles just follow. You know, the uh, old lady in the story, she, uh, she made her day and her husband's day a whole lot harder. Just because she forgot that he had dropped her off at work. Let's be people who remember to look into our basket of faith and take God at His word. We're going to stand and close out with a final song. Thank you for coming this morning.